Hello, kindred spirits. Welcome back to Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelly Gurner. And now we are in year two of podcasting. Here we are, and just as geeky as we were on day one. Maybe more so. (laughs) Probably more so. Today, we are going to be talking about Anne of Windy Poplars, which is pretty much no one's favorite Anne book. Although I admit, I have a weirdly soft spot for this book that is still there, even with a reread. I don't know. It must just tap into something about reading it in my adolescence. Also, major pro to this book, there is practically no Davy at all in this book. But before we get to it, let's check in with each other. It's back-to-school time, and this book has lots of back-to-school energy, certainly to start with. Kelly, did you have any, like, back-to-school traditions when you were growing up? Did you like going back to school, or did you dread it? I liked going back to school. (laughs) I was a nerdy kid. I think I really just loved the aesthetic of going back to school. Um, (laughs) I really loved getting to shop for new school supplies, new pencils and folders. I actually still really love school supply shopping. I was at Target yesterday and I swung past the school supply aisle and grabbed a few new pens for myself because why the heck not? But yeah, when I was growing up, it was all about Trapper Keepers and Lisa Frank and Sanrio characters and having all of kind of the right school accessories seemed absolutely critical to academic success. I also would always plan out my first week of school outfits. And I generally went for very fallish styles. Like I would pick out sweaters and tights and penny loafers to wear, which was incredibly foolish because I grew up in Southern California where it is 90 degrees through September and most of October. (laughs) But I really just got caught up in the whole kind of academic vibe. I wanted to dress the part, have all the right school-related accessories. In terms of like traditions, I remember my mom teaching me how to cover my textbooks with brown paper bags. And I loved in the couple days before school started decorating those books to the hilt with stickers and doodles and little notes or quotes or inside jokes. I can still picture some of those books in my mind now. I really went to town. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely relate on the academic aesthetic. I very much did the same thing, even though early September in Maryland, where I grew up, was also too warm for sweaters on the first day of school. (laughs) I I can picture in my mind so clearly like 17 magazine and sassy and all those like fabulous teens yes. growing up and their fall fashion spreads and you'd see all the girls for me in kind of mid-90s it was a lot of that clueless fashion where uh-huh. little you know plaid skirts. skirts and tights and cute hats and things and Reagan I fell for it all hook line and sinker yeah I was right there with you Also, my birthday is in September, so back to school time also coincided with feeling another year older. So September has definitely always been the true new year for me. Oh, yeah. And even though I haven't been in school for many years, I really do feel like when the school year starts, that's when the year starts. Although I guess now having a kid, the school calendar does dominate a lot of our life, especially now having a middle schooler. And it was really fun taking Alice shopping and seeing what 
notebooks and folders she chose and especially locker accessories this year oh we are really leveling up with the locker accessories these kids have stuff that we never dreamed of oh no so this is the first year that she really gets to pick her own school supplies in her elementary school they did this thing where all of the supplies went into kind of like a common pile so they would give you a list of what to buy but it was things like you need a red folder a blue folder a green folder a composition book a white binder Oh, a pack of pencils and a pack of markers. Yeah, like really prescripted. Yes. And then, you know, they put them all together. You didn't put your kid's name on anything. Mm. And then the idea was, so everybody got the same supplies. And if a kid didn't have supplies, the school provided it or, Mm. you know, parents would donate extra. Sure. Right. So this was the first year she got to pick out which folders she wanted and which composition books she wanted. And they are so cute. Everything is so cute. (laughs) What did she pick out? I'm curious to know what the, the trendy things are for middle schoolers. Well, she definitely went a little bit with the aesthetic is very naturey. Lots of succulents and sunshine and kind of gold and peach. She chose some very cute locker accessories that included these little tiny succulent magnets and a fake plant like with that comes in like a little hanging basket with a magnet on it to hang from the top of your locker. This is what I'm talking about. Hanging plants for your locker. Amazing. Kelly. We did not get this for her, but they have little tiny battery operated disco balls that you can stick to the top of your locker, little tiny like prism lights. She did ask, and I granted it because we have a ton of these battery operated fairy lights. Cute. So I was like, that's fine. We've got lots of those hanging around. So she took those to school too. Her locker was a big hit. Like a lot of kids came and told her how cute it was. Okay. Well, that's amazing. I did draw the line at the fake fur rug for the bottom of the locker. Oh, that seems a little excessive, especially knowing that like (laughs) how many times did my like lunch actually rot into the bottom of my locker? Exactly. Right. Like that thing is going to get so gross so fast. I'm stuck to it. All sorts of gross things. Yep. (laughs) Not to mention just the general like funk that middle school lockers have (laughs) after the first couple weeks. Gym shoes are in there, you know, over spring break or something. I mean, some of those smells never leave. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Anyway. So yeah, big back to school energy going on over here. Oh, fun. Let's move into our episode. If you did not know, Anne of Windy Poplars was not part of the original Anne canon. Initially, the Anne books went Anne of Green Gables, Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, which was written in 1915, straight to Anne's House of Dreams, which was written in 1917, and then on to Rainbow Valley and Rilla of Ingleside. Rilla of Ingleside was the last book in the series, and it was published in 1921, so supposedly that completed Anne's series. But there was a demand for more Anne, and that eventually pushed Maud to write Anne of Windy Poplars in 1936 and Anne of Ingleside in 1939. So Anne of Windy Poplars falls in Anne's timeline between Anne of the Island and Anne's House of Dreams, but it wasn't written until much later. And I think you can really tell that about the book. This book just has such a different tone than Anne of the Island and Anne's House of Dreams, which both have 
the same sort of feeling, at least to me. And I'm sure as we kind of continue on our deep dive, I'll be able to kind of identify that better and put my finger on what it is that makes this book feel different. But it just feels heavier to me, Reagan. I think a lot of people can definitely notice that there is something different about this book. And that's why it really doesn't show up for most people in their top couple of and books. It's really true. And I think that this book, although it has plenty of humorous moments, it does lack some of the like effervescence of some of the other Anne books. And maybe that's because Anne is like kind of a side character in her own life in this one. Yeah, a little bit. And so I am looking forward to exploring that over the next couple of episodes and maybe pulling apart what works and what doesn't work with this book. So for the quote of the episode, we're going to take this passage right from the beginning of the book. Anne is writing her very first letter to Gilbert from Windy Poplars. And she says, it's dusk, dearest. In passing, isn't dusk a lovely word? I like it better than twilight. It sounds so velvety and shadowy and, and dusky. In daylight, I belong to the world. In the night, to sleep and eternity. But in the dusk, I'm free from both and belong only to myself and you. So I'm going to keep this hour sacred to writing to you, though this won't be a love letter. I have a scratchy pen, and I can't write love letters with a scratchy pen, or a sharp pen, or a stub pen. So you'll only get that kind of letter from me when I have exactly the right kind of pen. So it's such a promising start, and it reminds us that Anne and Gilbert have only recently gotten engaged. I think one of the letdowns of this book for a lot of readers is that we get so very little of the romance we've all been invested in for the last three books. I want to see the love letters. I want to see the love letters, Anne. I mean, so this is the thing that the book does, right? She says, you'll only get a love letter if I have the certain kind of pen. Fine, whatever, Anne, you do you. But then when she does like write these more romantic letters, it's always with sort of an ellipsis. This is omitted for propriety's sake or something like that. And I need to know. I'm sure we'll talk about this more, Reagan, but what is in those letters? I know, exactly. She'll be telling kind of a very mundane story. And then she'll say, and I have exactly the right kind of pen tonight dot 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 and then you never know i'm like how salacious could these letters have really been honestly our kindred spirit of the episode is rebecca dew the housekeeper at windy poplars who drops frequent tart asides and fills in the backstories as needed for various town folk just as we needed an avonlea insider we also need a summerside insider Rebecca Dew is always referred to as such, never as just Rebecca, and she apparently needs to think that she makes the decision in the home in order for her to get on board with any change. It's honestly so strange how the women she worked for have to like manage her, but we'll talk more about it. It's part of what makes Rebecca Dew so lovable. Her main growth arc is her grudge against the cat Dusty Miller, primarily because she was not consulted before it was decided that they should keep him. She provides grounding at home and in the community for Anne. She's sort of a maternal touchstone, much like Marilla or Mrs. Lind or even Aunt Jimsy. Let's go right into our story club and recap Windy Poplars. Many of the chapters in Windy Poplars were originally published as short stories and were repurposed for this book. The book was also originally titled Anne of Windy Willows, but the American publisher thought that the Willows reference would confuse readers because of the other famous book, The Wind in the Willows. 
the British publishers must have had more trust in their audience because they kept the name Windy Willows and the American and Canadian editions are Windy Poplars. There are a few other tiny differences between the British edition and the American edition, namely a few slightly macabre details from graveyard walks, etc. that the American publishers thought would be too much have been cut out. Anne of Windy Poplars takes place immediately after Anne of the Island in the three years between Anne and Gilbert's engagement and their marriage. Gilbert is off to medical school in Kingsport, and Anne has accepted the principalship of a high school in Summerside, Prince Edward Island. Summerside is on the southwest side of Prince Edward. It's about 25 miles from Avonlea. So at the time, too far for daily trips back home, but close enough that Anne often goes back to Avonlea on the weekends. Despite the nearness, we have very few scenes that take place in Avonlea in this book. The book is written largely in the form of Anne's letters to Gilbert, with other chapters from a more traditional third-person perspective. The fact that so many of the chapters are reworked short stories gives this book an even more episodic structure than usual. There are lots of characters that we meet only for a chapter or two as Anne interacts with them, and then we never see them again. Really, most of the book can be sorted into irrationally cranky people and and medals, with some chapters combining both of those themes. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about how for middle-class couples in this era, the book opens with Anne recounting to Gilbert her experience of coming to Summerside to find a boarding house before the start of school. Mrs. Rachel Lynde accompanies Anne as she has some friends in Summerside to visit and some shopping to do. Despite being assured that it should be easy to find a boarding house in Summerside, as a Mrs. Tom Pringle often boards the principals at her house, they have no luck. Anne is turned away again and again from various boarding houses, all mysteriously too full or suddenly not taking boarders. They're discouraged and they visit Mrs. Rachel's friend, Mrs. Braddock, who recommends that Anne see if the widows at Windy Poplars on Spooks Lane are taking boarders delicious. The widows at Windy Poplars on Spooks Lane. Mrs. Braddock also drops the intel that Summerside's most prominent and numerous family, the Pringles, are a little ticked at Anne because a third cousin of theirs also applied for the principalship, but Anne got it instead. I mean, again with the third cousins. That is such a vague family relationship. And that's probably why anyone who is a Pringle or Pringle related won't rent to Anne. So Anne and Mrs. Rachel go to Windy Poplars. It turns out that the widows are Aunt Kate, the captain's widow, and Aunt Chatty, who is, quote, just a plain widow. They're elderly ladies living in a charming house, and they're considering taking a boarder to help them pay Rebecca Dew, who is their housekeeper and quite a force of personality. Anne loves Windy Poplars immediately, and the ants get Rebecca Dew to agree to having a border by pretending that they think that having a border is too much trouble. There is so much like reverse psychology that happens in the way the widows manage Rebecca Dew. It's just bonkers. Anne is promptly given a tower room that looks over the graveyard. Anne loves it and feels right at home. I have to say, I adore this tower room. It's described as being handmade by Aunt Kate's sea captain husband, and it's full of interesting drawers, nooks, and crannies. And there's a bed so high you need a tiny pair of steps to climb into it. I think this room, especially with its graveyard view, is one of the best settings in all of the Anne books. The first obstacle of housing, now conquered, and sets to teaching and running the school. So way back when we talked about teachers, we talked about the one-room schoolhouse and their prevalence on PEI. This school, by contrast, is a high school, and it has three teachers, Anne as principal, teaching the seniors, Catherine Brooke as vice principal, teaching the juniors, and George McKay, teaching the prep class. 
So this is a much more advanced school scenario than a one-room schoolhouse, and it's just focusing on kids in the older grades, but before they're old enough for queens. It's quite a promotion for Anne from the Avonlea schoolroom, and it's proof of what her BA does in the world. Anne has two major problems at the school, which take up the bulk of what could be called plot in this book. The first major one is that the Pringles indeed hate Anne, sight unseen, and by being the largest family in Summerside and the one with the most connections, they have stood together and decided to make Anne's life a misery. Her Pringle students, led by Jen Pringle, play mean-spirited pranks on her and display just enough disrespect to be contagious to the non-Pringles in the classroom. But when Anne tries to utilize any sort of discipline, the adult Pringles sweep right in and negate it. Anne is invited exactly once to every Pringle student's house for dinner, where she's either lectured or condescended to, and then frozen out of all the major social events, even ones led by non-Pringles. The Pringles know what unions know, which is that with solidarity, you can accomplish great things. It's just that instead of using that solidarity to improve working conditions or ensure a living wage, the Pringles engage in petty revenge against a single young woman whose only crime is not being a Pringle. The town is nearly half Pringle or Pringle related. And so if all the Pringles threaten to say boycott the church choir if Anne is allowed to join, then there will be no more choir. So they succeed in making Anne's life rather miserable. Her other major problem, but one that is rather backburnered to the Pringle issue, is that Catherine Brooke, the vice principal, is very cold and rude to Anne, making it very difficult to work together. But at least she isn't actively sabotaging Anne. Well, despite the Pringle issue, Anne is enjoying everyone else in Summerside. The widows are lovely to her. Aunt Kate is rather austere and dry, somewhat Marilla-like. And Aunt Chatty is emotional and social. Her feelings often get hurt, but she quickly gets over it. Rebecca Dew rules the roost, at least so she thinks, and is down-to-earth, loyal, and an excellent cook. Anne has also met little Elizabeth, a girl who lives next door with her dour grandmother and her equally cheerless handmaiden, known only as The Woman. That's from little Elizabeth's perspective, and it's always capitalized, capital T, capital W, The Woman. It's so foreboding. So Anne frequently brings Elizabeth a glass of milk in the evening from the cow that the widows keep. And Elizabeth is sweet and whimsical and a little daydreamer. So she and Anne immediately form a fast friendship. Elizabeth is the kind of kid who changes her name based on her mood. Betty when she is feeling free-spirited and rebellious. Elizabeth when she's thoughtful. But never ever Lizzie. You know Anne loves anything related to making your name your own, and I remember loving this detail when I read this book as a kid. And to this day, I'm so enchanted by a name that can have multiple nicknames. It just feels so versatile. Anne is quickly a light in Elizabeth's life, who has been starved for love by her grandmother. Apparently, Elizabeth's mother had died in childbirth with her, and her father was too brokenhearted to raise her. And so he sent her to her grandmother, and apparently he hasn't seen her since she was a baby. I mean, that whole situation is just wild. You really do feel for little Elizabeth. At school, Anne likes a lot of her non-Pringle students and even admits it to Gilbert that if the Pringles stopped being so awful to her, she'd like them too. And honestly, I appreciate that Anne can see the good in them, but I don't know if I could bring myself to like a family that waged such a concerted campaign to make my life miserable. By the time November rolls around, Anne is feeling discouraged about it all. She has managed only one victory over the Pringles so far. So Anne had started this dramatic club and the group was planning to put on a, I don't know, some theatrical version of Mary Queen of Scots to raise money for the school. Catherine Brooke, remember the vice principal, had insisted that Jen Pringle play Mary, saying that she was the only one with enough personality for it. 
Anne had also kind of thought that maybe another student, Sophie Sinclair, could do it, but Sophie was too poor to pay the drama club dues. Anne leaves Jen's coaching to Catherine to decrease the conflicts with Jen, and the play is coming along swimmingly. When Anne finds out that Sophie deeply wished that she could also be in the play, she encourages Sophie to study the part on her own as a dramatic exercise, and Anne rehearses the part of Mary with Sophie after school on her own. The day of the play arrives. The show is sold out, a band is hired, the hall is decorated, and a noted soprano has volunteered to come up and sing between the acts. All is in readiness when a note comes from Jen Pringle's mother that she has tonsillitis and cannot perform in the play tonight. All seems lost, right? Because there won't be any time to put it on again before the Christmas holidays. Anne suspects that Jen isn't really sick, but this is a calculated move to ruin the play because it was Anne's pet project. Luckily, Sophie has the part memorized, and what's more, she's been rehearsing it with passion and skill with Anne for weeks. So into the costume she goes, and she is a roaring success. Anne feels like Sophie embodied Mary in a way that Jen could never have, and all the students are so impressed that they insist that Sophie join the drama club permanently. Maude also gives us a little aside and tells us that this is the first step in Sophie's acting career, and that she grows up to be a leading actress in America. So take that, Pringle family. <laughs> That's at least one point to Anne, although the Pringles have racked up at least 25 points in pettiness so far. Anne takes a stroll in the graveyard one evening to distract herself from her despair regarding the Pringles. And there she bumps into Miss Valentine Cordolo. Aside, what a name. What a name! Miss Valentine is the town dressmaker who luckily has not a drop of Pringle blood. So Ms. Valentine knows all the stories about the folks buried in the graveyard, and she gives Anne the lowdown on all the various families buried there, being weirdly proud that she has so many relatives buried in that graveyard. And we get to hear a little bit about Captain Abraham Pringle, evidently the Pringle family patriarch, who was a very prominent sea captain. He was the father of the two elderly Pringle sisters, Miss Ellen and Miss Sarah, who are the current matriarchs of the Pringle clan. We also find out that he had a rather disreputable brother named Myram who was also a sea captain. Finally, the big break in the Pringle situation comes. Anne has gone out to visit one of her pupils' families, who live a bit farther from town, so she's spending the night there. While there, Anne spots an old trunk, and being kind of bored, she asks if she could look through it. A Mrs. Stanton in Summerside had been writing a history of the county, and she had asked Anne to keep a lookout for old diaries, journals, maps, other documents that maybe could be used for her book. Anne finds that in Old Uncle Andy's sea chest, he had kept a diary of his years at sea sailing with Captain Abraham Pringle. Anne leaves through it and notes that it is filled with lots of praise for Captain Pringle, although Andy does not think much of his brother Myram Pringle, noting that Myram had once told Andy that after his ship had burned and the crew took to the lifeboats, they lived on the body of a sailor who had shot himself until they were rescued, and he thought it all a rather good joke. Hey, that's ghoulish. Anne determines that this journal is not the kind of thing that Mrs. Stanton is really interested in, but thinks maybe it could be a peace offering to the Pringle ladies, since it's full of praise for the heroism and leadership of the vaunted Abraham Pringle. So she sends it off to them with a short note, intending to be kind and thus true to her own moral code. Next thing you know, the two little old ladies, including Miss Sarah, who hasn't left the house in years, are pulling up to Windy Poplars. It turns out that they have, according to Miss Sarah, come to capitulate. They thought that Anne was blackmailing them with the info that Myram Pringle had engaged in cannibalism. 
and clears it up. She never had any intention of telling anyone about that detail. She just thought that they might like the journal since it was full of how wonderful Captain Pringle was. Yeah, and full of how cannibalistic Myron Pringle was. The ladies admit that they have been terrible to Anne and that it is now all water under the bridge. Anne forgives them and promises not to tell, but she does now have a little ace in her pocket and they all know it, ensuring that Anne will always be on the good side of the Pringle family. So that little problem gets wrapped up very neatly. Jen Pringle apologizes to Anne in front of the whole school. Anne is suddenly invited to all the social events. The parents stop complaining about Anne's teaching style. And all of Summerside understands that Anne has won the Pringle freeze out. True to her word, no one else will ever know why. And I don't know about you. I don't know if I'd forgive the Pringles all that easily after how devoted they were to making her life miserable. I know. I just think the problem is Anne doesn't have the luxury of continuing the grudge. She's already learned that she has to make peace with these people if she's going to get anything done. Fair. For the rest of the book, there's very little narrative tension. (laughs) Now that Anne has been accepted into the town, she's in a very enviable position because she's engaged. So no one considers her a threat in the dating world, but she's also not married. So she's kind of free to do what she wants in terms of attending social events and, you know, kind of just being involved in town goings on generally. Anne makes lots of friends, most of whom, by the way, we only get to meet once. And thus begins Anne's busybody era. Generally to the good, but this is very much where the short story nature of the book feels most prominent. So first, Anne is implored by her friend Trix Taylor, another cool name, to become a buffer at dinner. Trix's dad has a habit of giving the silent treatment, and to such a horrific extent that the whole family tiptoes around him to avoid his tantrums. Trix hasn't even told her dad that she's engaged to Johnny because she knows her dad doesn't like him much and she can't bear the tantrum that will come after. The dinner that she invites Anne to is an important one in which a Dr. Carter, who is the beau of Trix's sister Esme, is coming to dinner all the way from Nova Scotia and she's hoping that he will finally propose. The family is terrified that the dad, the dad's name is Cyrus by the way, will be in one of his sulks and they will all be paralyzed with fear. Trix is hoping that the dad will behave better if Anne is there and if he is in a bad mood, Anne's social skills might smooth the way. Okay, we just need to say that by modern social standards, this is abusive behavior on the part of Cyrus. A hundred percent. It's really awful. Just to make this clear, even with no physical violence, this is emotional abuse and it clearly terrorizes the whole family. Everyone in this family lives with constant fear and anxiety in order to try to keep this guy in a cheerful mood. I I mean, down to something as little as being afraid to wear a dress in a color he doesn't like. Because apparently his worst tantrum ever was because Mrs. Taylor hung red velvet curtains and he preferred mulberry colored curtains. I mean, (laughs) it's not actually funny behavior and it's kind of frustrating that it's played off for laughs in the book you know and i would just encourage anyone who's listening if you have someone like this in your life google the missing stare principle which is a metaphor for a person within a group who most of the group knows needs to be managed but instead of addressing the behavior openly the group just works around it like stepping over a missing stare in a staircase it's not a healthy group dynamic and you know you really see how painful it is for the people in the taylor home So Anne arrives for dinner. Cyrus, the missing stare, is in a sulk because he had lost a game of checkers. I hate him. And he's been taking it out on everyone all day long. So when Anne gets there, the chill at the table is palpable and no one can muster any small talk with Cyrus glaring silently at everyone. Even Anne can't think of a thing to say. Finally, Anne has enough 
and she drops this bomb at the table. She says to Dr. Carter, remember that's Esme's would-be betrothed, perhaps you'd be surprised to hear that Mr. Taylor went deaf very suddenly last week. Now, pay attention because she has carefully crafted this question so that technically she didn't say that he is deaf. But this shakes Trix and her brother Pringle. Yes, that's his first name in a town full of Pringles. Trix and her brother Pringle are both sick and tired of their dad's tantrums. And so now they start one-upping each other with ridiculous statements like, what would you think of a man who would make his family live on fruit and eggs? Nothing but fruit and eggs just for a fad. And what would you think of a man who would cut up his wife's silk dress just because the way it was made didn't suit him? So they're also crafting these little questions where they technically aren't saying that their dad did those things. And they just keep topping each other with more and more outrageous statements as Cyrus just turns redder and redder, determined not to speak. He's so committed to this tantrum of his. So now as things start spinning out of control, Esme, sure that Dr. Carter is scandalized and all of her romantic dreams are gone forever, she speaks up with, what would you think of a man who spent a whole day hunting for the kittens of a poor cat who had been shot because he couldn't bear to think of them starving to death? And then Mrs. Taylor pipes up in his defense as well with, and he can crochet so beautifully. I mean, it is a little funny. So that's the straw that finally breaks Cyrus, who then roars and pushes his chair so hard he breaks a vase. He's the worst. He angrily either denies or justifies all the outrageous things that have been said about him until he finally looks at Anne and starts to laugh. He admits to Dr. Carter that he has a terrible habit of sulking. I don't know if I'd call deliberately terrorizing your family with rage and the silent treatment a bad habit. He admits that he had it coming to him, except for the line about crocheting, because God forbid he excels at something women traditionally do. Reagan, I hate him. (laughs) I know. I mean, I see the humor. Like, I see why it's supposed to be funny, but I have so much trouble finding this part of the book charming or humorous. Well, I think this is very much where the book shows its age. For sure. This is in no way acceptable in our modern era. This isn't how you treat people. And, you know, again, listeners, if you have someone in your life who treats you like this, please, you deserve better. Anyway, the dinner ends cheerfully. Anne even chastises Trix for saying such terrible things about her dad. And in the aftermath, Trix finally tells her father that she's engaged to Johnny. And he doesn't sulk since the last one had been such a doozy. And Dr. Carter does eventually propose to Esme. So both girls are happy. And the dad is, I guess, placated for the time being. Mildly chastised. I We next get a few sweet letters from Anne to Gilbert, mostly talking about how she just loves imaginative little Elizabeth from next door and how they are drawing a map of fairyland together. It's very cute. And then we get the next episode of Anne Medals, another (laughs) cranky person terrorizing her children. Mrs. Gibson and her daughter Pauline are old acquaintances of Marilla's, so Anne has started visiting them primarily to give Pauline a break. Pauline is not married. And all of Mrs. Gibson's other children have moved far away and will not have Mrs. Gibson come to live with them for very good reason. Pauline, who is 45 and described as still pretty, thanks, Anne. Yeah, ouch. (laughs) Lives with her and is absolutely run off her feet by her mother's constant demands. Mrs. Gibson is a terrible tyrant and is constantly being aggressively passive aggressive, saying things like, if I must die alone, I must. And nobody cares how much I suffer. And I'll just leave it to your conscience. Anytime Pauline expresses the slightest disagreement. She's straight up mean and sarcastic to Pauline, honestly. 
Pauline wants to go to White Sands for the day to celebrate her cousin's silver wedding anniversary. But Mrs. Gibson uses every passive-aggressive weapon in her arsenal to guilt Pauline into staying. Anne volunteers to stay with Mrs. Gibson so Pauline can go. And it takes insinuating that people will all talk if Pauline isn't there to get Mrs. Gibson to relent at all. Anne even lends Pauline a pretty dress to wear because Mrs. Gibson won't let her wear anything but black. And Pauline has to hide it under her black dress in order to leave. Mrs. Gibson is predictably horrible, insulting Pauline, Anne, and each and every person associated with the silver wedding. But Pauline is finally able to leave. Mrs. Gibson is apparently somewhat nicer to Anne than to Pauline, which, oof. And in the morning, Anne even convinces her to sit outside in the sunshine. But she gets grumpy in the afternoon and does nothing but complain and harry Anne. The water's too cold. This water isn't cold enough, but it doesn't matter anyway. No one cares about her. She's dying anyway. Everything hurts. No one cares about her comfort. This pillow is too low and now it's too high. It's just constant. Ugh. Longest afternoon of Anne's life, and Pauline finally gets home at 10 p.m., having had the most perfect day away, seeing friends, and actually eating what she likes without being chastised, interrupted, and insulted by her mother. When Anne tells Pauline that she wishes life wasn't so hard for her, Pauline actually says she won't mind so much now thanks to this beautiful day and, quote, after all, poor Ma needs me and it's nice to be needed. Pauline, no, that is not the way. I know this was a different time, but man, Mrs. Gibson always makes me ragey. Yeah, for me, she's just another old crank who I think we're supposed to think is kind of funny, but is really just abusive. Regan, this town needs an MFT badly. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you're willing to set up shop in Summerside. but I was like, we need more than one. We need a whole family therapy practice set up. Yeah. (laughs) So this chapter leads right into another Anne Metals chapter. In this one, she's going to the wedding of Sally Nelson, in which Anne is a bridesmaid. And just in case you're wondering, no, we haven't ever heard of the Nelson family prior to this book, and we will not after this book, so don't get too attached. Sally is one of Dr. Nelson's six daughters, and the fifth to get married, with Nora Nelson being the last daughter standing. The wedding involves a ton of family and friends staying at the family's summer home. Sally is a bubbly blonde with tons of friends and some serious fat phobia, saying that Anne is to be the bridesmaid instead of her friend Amy Stewart, who is too fat and dumpy to be a bridesmaid. So, you know, just some really cool fat phobia there. Thank you so much, Sally. Only two of the people there are not particularly cheerful. One is Aunt Mauser, so nicknamed because she mouses around looking for things to worry about. She has a habit of popping up and worrying about something terribly nonsensical, like hoping the organist doesn't play the dead march instead of the wedding march, like at Dora Best's wedding. Like, why do you think that's going to happen, Aunt Mauser? Good lord. The other unhappy person at the wedding is Sally's older sister, Nora. Now, Nora is upset because people keep reminding her that she's the only sister unmarried, which honestly would make anyone grumpy. And I also just think that, like, weddings kind of bring out the worst about people and that kind of thing. Oh, yes. It's always where people ask, like, when are you guys going to have kids or who's next or whatever? And it's just like, everyone needs to mind their own business. Something about weddings makes people real judgy. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Although it appears that Nora is more sarcastic and sharp in general than her more popular sister, and not as classically pretty, Anne thinks that Nora would probably be the more interesting friend. Nora ends up confiding in Anne that she's extra miserable because she had just been sort of on again off again with Jim Wilcox, a young man who grew up across the bay from her, and quote, he's been hanging around me for years but never says anything about getting married. 
When Anne asks if Nora cares for Jim, she says she does, but that she always pretended she didn't. If you could see me eye rolling. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, Nora. I I wonder why he's never proposed. I wonder what's going on. So anyway, Nora and Jim had a big blow up fight in January, but he had always come back previously after their fights. And this time he didn't. Nora is now realizing that she's tired of pretending she doesn't want to get married and tired of pretending she doesn't want to care about him. But she's too proud to tell him to come back. She mentions that ever since they were kids, she'd put a light in the attic window. And whenever he saw that signal, he'd sail across the bay to see her. That's really sweet and romantic. Nora is deeply conflicted about it all, resentful and spiky and regretful. The next day, the wedding is a hectic, fun day with parties until late at night. Nora puts on a good face, but is clearly roiling and unhappy beneath the surface, snapping even at Anne, saying, oh, you ought to be in a museum, at Anne's cheerful declaration that she likes washing dirty dishes and making them clean and sparkling. And to be honest, fair. That's that's such a wild, that's a wild take, Anne. At any rate, Anne recognizes the deep unhappiness that Nora has trapped herself in, and she takes a wild chance. This is so Anne, by the way. She puts a candle up in that attic window, figuring that if Jim sees it and comes, all to the good, and if he doesn't, Nora never needs to know. So late at night, when everyone is asleep, there's a crash and a bang coming from downstairs. Everyone in the house piles downstairs to investigate, to find Jim and Nora in the library, and him holding a big handkerchief to her face. After determining that he's not a burglar trying to chloroform Nora, he says that he saw Nora's signal and rode across the bay. Nora had seen him come up the shore and ran down, running into the library door and causing a nosebleed. Jim was just trying to help her. So there's lots of anger, right? Nora denying she set the signal and confessing Jim is confused. Aunt Mauser says that Jim better marry Nora because if word gets out they were found alone in the library at 2 a.m., she'll never have another prospect. Thanks, Aunt Mauser? Wow. Jim yells he's always wanted to marry her all his life, but Nora had snubbed, frozen, and jeered at him for years and gone out of her way to show that he didn't have a chance. They start to argue about who started the last fight they had, and Jim finally yells that he'll ask her right then just so she can turn him down in front of anyone, and Nora accepts. They kiss right there in front of everyone, despite the blood all over Nora's face. So it all ends well, though Nora confesses the next day that she wanted to chew Anne's ears off for about two minutes during that whole debacle. I kind of don't blame her. Anne definitely, that was a heroic amount of meddling from Anne. That was an overreach. Well, thus ends Anne's first year at Windy Poplars. We spend very little time in the schoolroom, by the way. In a letter to Gilbert, she alludes to planning to spend two months in Avonlea and that he will be home as well. But we don't get to see any of Anne's summer, though. Which totally sucks and robs us readers of romance. Yes. And we pick right back up at Windy Poplars at the start of the next school year. Anne is determined to start up the dramatic society again. So in the very first installment of the new school year... She and one of her students, Lewis Allen, are going to do some canvassing to raise money for the Dramatic Society. Lewis is a poor student, an orphan, and he does housework at his boarding house in order to go to Summerside High. Lewis is taking along his camera because he's hoping to submit a winning photo of a farmhouse to a competition offered by a magazine that has a prize of $25. He could really use the money. This is another chapter which was apparently lifted straight from one of Maud's short stories. This one published way back in 1906, so very early, a very early story for her. As they walk, they decide to take a little detour along a side road and find the most perfectly quaint little farmhouse for Lewis to take a picture of, which he does. 
They then knock on the door, going to try their luck to canvas, and it's answered by a gruff, unsociable man who basically shuts the door in their face. On their way back to the main road, a little boy, about age eight, stops them. His name is Teddy, and he offers them a turnover, baked by his dad, presumably that gruff man who just shut the door in their face. The boy is very sweet, the turnover is very good, and Teddy explains that his dad isn't very good at being social, but he's a great father, and his mother died when he was very young. Teddy shares that his neighbor told him that his mother went to heaven, but dad said that there isn't any such place. Teddy is called Little Fellow by his dad, and he's so charming and sweet-looking and thinks he looks just like a prince in disguise. Lewis offers to take his picture with his big dog, Carlo, and then he'll send it to him by mail once it's developed as a thank you for the turnover. Anne shares this little encounter with Rebecca Dew and the widows back at Windy Poplars, who add the context that James Armstrong, Teddy's father, had always been a bit reclusive, but he became very sour and even more of a hermit when his wife died five years ago, refusing any help to raise the boy alone and reportedly worships the little boy who was the only person in his life. Three weeks later, Lewis finally gets around to developing his pictures from that day, and Anne and Lewis decide to deliver the photograph in person to Teddy and his father because they notice a striking resemblance between Lewis and the little boy, comparing it to a photo of Lewis at about a similar age. Lewis doesn't think he has any family in Prince Edward. Lewis lived in New Brunswick with his parents until they died when he was 10, and that's when he came to PEI to live with his mother's cousin, who then died three years later. But Lewis thinks he'll ask Teddy's dad, and maybe they are obscurely related in some way. So off they go. Lewis is driving an ancient old buggy pulled by an ancient old horse, lent by a Mr. Bender on the condition that they do an errand for him out that way. As they stop to pick up the sack of potatoes on behalf of Mr. Bender from a Mr. Merrill, they mention that they're on their way to bring a photograph of Teddy Armstrong out to him and his dad. Only for Mr. Merrill to tell them that Teddy has just recently tragically died of pneumonia and that his father is not only wild with grief, but despairing because he doesn't even have a photo of Teddy. So Lewis and Anne bring James Armstrong the photo, and he bursts into tears at the sight of it. When he finally regains control of himself, he shares that he doesn't have any memory for faces, and Teddy's face was already starting to fade for him. He says that Teddy had been very brave and patient while ill, and he told his father that he thought maybe his dad was wrong about heaven, which of course led his dad back to some faith. And Teddy made his dad promise to be nicer to people once he was gone so that he wouldn't be lonely. Mm. Lewis shows Mr. Armstrong the photo of himself at Teddy's age, and they figure out that Lewis's mother was Mr. Armstrong's half-sister, and he had only met this half-sister once. She was very much younger than him. So Mr. Armstrong is Lewis's uncle, and he asks Lewis to come live with him and to let him help Lewis, knowing that he would only grow bitter if he lived on his own. So they both find a little family. We finally move on to an issue that more actively involves Anne, and that's the problem of Catherine Brooke, her prickly, abrasive assistant principal, who, when Anne mentioned that she loves how Catherine spells her name with a K rather than a C, immediately received a note from Catherine signed Catherine with a C. Okay, that is not a kind and just use of name variants. Catherine has been the thorn in Anne's side since the Pringle issue finally resolved, and all of Anne's attempts at being nice, and including her, have not seemed to make any difference. Still, Anne thinks there's something there, that it's loneliness under Catherine's meanness, and if she can only break through, she will find a kindred spirit under it all. So Anne decides to invite Catherine to spend the Christmas holidays with her at Green Gables. 
So Anne goes to Catherine's boarding house, which is depressing and run by a grumpy lady who clearly doesn't like Catherine very much, referring to her as stuck up and proud and and saying that she won't let Catherine have a dog that she recently asked for. Anne charms the landlady into consenting to the dog before she even goes up to see Catherine. Wild, wild thing to do, by the way. Well, Anne is in her meddling era. She can't help it. She's in her meddling era. Catherine is as ungracious as expected. Anne plows ahead, calling Catherine out on her inhospitality. And when Catherine is sarcastic about Anne's invitation to Green Gables, calling it charity, Anne says what she's really been thinking all along, which is, Catherine Brooke, whether you know it or not, what you want is a good spanking. Cheer! Someone had to say it. Someone had to say it. I will say, in this book, Anne is a lot more direct than she's generally been in the past. That is true. I think it's some of that engaged woman energy that she has now she's in that space where like she doesn't have to be a sweet and obliging girl and she's not quite a wife yet. So she can kind of just, I don't know, be herself a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit of protective armor out there. It really is. Anyway, so the spanking comment manages to break the ice finally. And while Catherine doesn't exactly smile, she says, what would you say if I accepted to yourself, not to me? Anne retorts that I'd say you were showing the first faint glimmer of common sense I'd ever detected in you. And that frank reply actually makes Catherine laugh. She agrees to come, but warns Anne that she won't be the most exhilarating guest. And then she even offers to walk Anne home and admire the moon. So we finally get some time at Green Gables over Christmas. The warmth of Green Gables does in fact work its magic on Catherine, who immediately starts thawing with the welcome that Marilla, Mrs. Rachel, and the twins envelop her with. There's some fun Avonlea gossip. Diana just had a daughter. Josie Pye is engaged, and so is Charlie Sloan. Not to each other, of course. So when Anne and Catherine go for a snowshoe hike in the moonlight the first night there, Catherine breaks down and cries. She's envious that everything seems to come so easily to Anne, who seems surrounded by love and happiness. When Catherine laments that she's friendless and alone, Anne is direct that Catherine has done this to herself. She shut out anyone who had made any overtures at all toward her. Catherine wails, I was glad when the Pringles made trouble for you. You seem to have everything I hadn't. Charm, friendship, youth. You hadn't the least idea of what it was like to not be wanted by anyone. Anne then shares about her own starved childhood before Green Gables, and then that thaws Catherine completely. Catherine shares her backstory with Anne, which is similar to Anne's. Catherine's first memory is someone saying about her, what an ugly child. Her parents hated each other and didn't want her, so her early child was filled with fighting and arguing. They died when Catherine was seven, and she went to live with an uncle's family who didn't want her either. She was constantly looked down on for living on charity. Her uncle agreed to pay for Catherine to go to Queens with the condition that she pay him back once she was teaching. She's been scrimping and saving to pay him back ever since, hence why she was living in such a miserable boarding house. But now she had just finished paying him and she finally feels free. She knows that in the meantime, though, she's been so angry that she's kept everyone at arm's length and now fears she'll never be able to make her way back. She says, hate's gotta be a disease with me. I do want to be like other people and I never can now. That is what makes me so bitter. So we can see in Catherine what easily could have happened to Anne if she hadn't had her imagination to keep her going and she hadn't had the love of Marilla and Matthew to counter her neglect. Anne promises that she will help Catherine shed her bitterness and discover life again. And then what follows is straight out of a movie montage. 
The fresh air makes Catherine's skin glow, and Anne starts the makeover mission to help Catherine dress in a way that suits her better. Catherine leans into the Green Gables experience, forging a friendship with Davy, who seems to have outgrown some of his major troublemaking ways. But poor Dora, again, is dismissed as being too impeccable. Catherine gets lots of presents for Christmas from the Green Gables folks, including a puppy from Anne, a wildly presumptuous gift, by the way. Do not give people pets as gifts. Anne. Anyway, then, of course, Anne reassures Catherine that she's already worked it out with the landlady. But anyway, Catherine should move to a better situation now that she can afford it, which I agree. Gilbert is there visiting, too, and he takes them both to see Diana and her new baby. Anne convinces Catherine to recite at a local concert, and she gives her a total makeover with a new hairstyle and convinces her that, you know, pretty clothes actually do make a difference. Catherine's able to laugh without bitterness, and Anne is delighted to have her as a friend, with a little twinge that it's not Diana, who is now busy as a mother beside her doing all the Avonlea things. They return to school as firm friends. Next, we see Anne use a little manipulation to get Elizabeth's grandmother to allow her to perform in the school concert. She's getting pretty overt in her meddling, but Elizabeth clearly needs someone to stick up for her, so I'll let it slide. (laughs) The next grumpy old lady in Anne's orbit is cousin Ernestine Bugle, a cousin three times removed. Again, are you even a cousin at that point? I don't know. These family relationships are awfully tenuous, and it seems like you have to put up with an awful lot of nonsense from people you're barely related to in this book. Right. So cousin Ernestine is a cousin three times removed from Aunt Kate's late husband. She's not even related to anybody in the house. Immediately, no. If that woman woman knocked on my door, I would be like, man, you have the wrong address. (laughs) So she comes to dinner, and she spends the entire dinner worrying about improbable things. Practically the first thing she says is, I'm afraid I'm like poor Mrs. Oliver Gage. She ate mushrooms last summer, but there must have been a toadstool among them for she's never felt the same since. Aunt Chatty says, surely it's too early in the season for Cousin Ernestine to be eating any mushrooms. So she replies, well, no, but I'm afraid I ate something else. Cousin Ernestine is set up as a comic figure, with her constant worries being punctuated by Rebecca Dew, who keeps sweeping in to refute Ernestine's worry and flouncing back out again. Every single sentence she says starts with, I'm afraid, and it almost feels like Maud was doing some obscure writing exercise with this chapter to see how many different ways she can end that sentence. Cousin Ernestine is much like Aunt Mouser of the Nelson wedding, so I'm not quite sure what the point of her is except to give Anne a contrast to her own sunny attitude towards life, I guess. Anne's next adventure in meddling is in regards to Hazel Marr. Hazel is a young lady of 18, new in town, rather smitten with Anne as a mentor, rather smitten with her own beauty, and full of her own importance and romance. She's really living the main character energy life. Yeah, she is. She speaks in nothing but italics and is sure that she is more different, feels more deeply, has the most poetic experiences than anyone else ever has. But Anne is charmed by Hazel's enthusiasm and worship of her, recognizing her own youth in Hazel somewhat. Here's a little Hazel quote just to give you some context. I have really no place to pour out my soul said Hazel pathetically. Except in my journal, of course. Will you let me show you my journal one day, Miss Shirley? It is a self-revelation. And yet I cannot write what burns in my soul. It it stifles me. Hazel clutched dramatically at her throat. Hey, yay, yay. I mean like that the whole time. 
I know that Anne has a lot of patience and she's easily charmed by young women who feel things deeply like she did when she was a little girl. But this Hazel person really takes it over the top. Oh, she does. So Hazel confides that her current dilemma is that she thought she was in love with Terry Garland, her beau, to whom she is now engaged. But now she realized that she's not in love and she can't tell Terry, sure, that she will absolutely destroy him. Anne clearly remembers her experience with Roy. And so from that experience, counsels Hazel that she should tell Terry directly. Hazel raves, I've grown old in these past few weeks, Miss Shirley, old. I've hardly eaten anything since I got engaged. Mother could tell you, I'm sure I don't love him enough to marry him. Whatever else I may be in doubt about, I know that. You get the impression that Hazel is delighted by the high drama of it all. She even wonders if perhaps she's the reincarnation of Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. I mean, it's a lot. I can't roll my eyes hard enough. (laughs) Helen of Troy. Anne doesn't particularly think too much of Terry anyway, who is closer to Anne's age than to Hazel's. She thinks he's good looking, but weak in spirit. Well, Hazel goes off to Kingsport for a few weeks to visit family, and Terry hangs around with Anne a lot as the more mature ones amongst the Summerside youth. And one evening at a party out in the garden, he basically hits on Anne. Despite the fact that they're both apparently engaged. And when Anne reminds him of Hazel, his intended, Terry says, oh, but Hazel is a child and he was just swept off his feet in the moonlight into proposing to her and that Hazel took it all too seriously. He doesn't know how to break it to her that it's all a mistake. And perhaps emboldened with her successful interference in the Nora Nelson situation, takes a chance here and tries the direct approach, explaining that, hey, good news, Hazel feels the same way saying, she's just a bewildered romantic girl and you're a boy who is in love with love and someday you'll both have a good laugh at yourselves. Terry thanks Anne for this clarity and Anne goes away well satisfied that she really helped out the two of them out of a difficult situation. Okay, and this is where, Anne, you had to know that this was not actually the right thing to do. I mean, you think you're clearing the air, but what you're really doing is like breaking up an actual relationship. Right, so... Anne gets her comeuppance. A few weeks later, Hazel storms on up to Anne's room, accusing Anne of trying to break up her, quote, sacred engagement. Anne has a head cold and sneezes her way through Hazel's fury, which makes this whole thing much funnier because every other sentence is punctuated by Anne sneezes. Hazel denies that she never meant anything serious about not wanting to marry Terry, and that Anne is jealous and old and envious of Hazel's youth. She calls her old many times. Oh, my word. She's envious of Hazel's youth and passionate romance. Anne is in no mood for Hazel's shenanigans, thinking, quote, you can't have many exclamation points left, but no doubt the supply of (laughs) italics is inexhaustible. She wisely keeps this to herself. You can see that Anne is at the end of her rope, though. Hazel is richly enjoying the high melodrama of it all and is directly contradicting everything she told Anne in her previous conversation. Anne speaks plainly and tries to clear up any miscommunication, but she just ends the conversation when it's clear that Hazel is not going to hear Anne at all. Anne then chides herself for meddling, for letting the flattery of Hazel go to her head and hopefully learning a lesson here about staying out of other people's romances. Spoiler alert, she doesn't. Oh, yeah, no. A week later... (laughs) She gets a dramatic letter from Hazel, magnanimously forgiving Anne and going on and on about her planned wedding and trousseau. And the letter is 
filled with poisonously passive-aggressive little sentences. Things like, Terry says that his heart never really swerved in its allegiance to me. He says he likes sweet, simple girls that all men do and has no use for intriguing, designing ones. Yikes. And that closes out that chapter and Anne's second year at Windy Poplars. Will she learn a lesson about meddling? Um, apparently not. Apparently not. So <laughs> Anne then goes home to Green Gables for the summer. And unfortunately, Gilbert can't be there as he's working on the new railroad that's being built. I'm assuming to afford medical school. Anne finally has permission to take little Elizabeth to Green Gables for two weeks, out from under the oppressive thumb of her grandmother. Green Gables works its magic once again, and Elizabeth blossoms during those two weeks, shrieking with laughter, exploring the outdoors, and at last, finally, someone hangs out with Dora. <laughs> Maud gives Elizabeth lots of fanciful little speeches that serve as a reminder of Anne at her youngest, and Elizabeth thinks she'll never be as happy as those two weeks at Green Gables. After Elizabeth leaves, Catherine comes to stay. She has resigned from her post at the school and has decided to take a one-year secretarial course at Redmond to pursue a different career altogether from teaching. Anne is happy for Catherine to finally be making her own choices in life, although she will miss working with her. And then we start Anne's last year at Windy Poplars. Windy Poplars hasn't changed much, except that Rebecca Dew is ramping up her campaign against the poor cat, making the widows consider rehoming him to keep her happy. The next chapter of the book involves Davy's troublemaking successors, as Anne babysits for some absolutely horrible twins who have a mother that's all charisma and no discipline or follow through. I am kind of glad to see that even back then there were parents that were overindulgent, sure that their children were never at fault for any wrongdoing. So I guess it's a universal problem. And again, just keep in mind, y'all, we will never see any of these characters. So don't worry about remembering them. The kids are Gerald and Geraldine absolutely absurd choice of names, who are eight-year-old twins. Their mother, Mrs. Raymond, is a widow. Mrs. Raymond is full of beliefs that children should be loved, not disciplined, and that high-spirited children are more natural. I'm pretty sure this would have been me if I had ever had kids. I mean, I can barely bear to scold my dogs. Kelly, don't worry. I am your friend, the family therapist. I would be right there being like, girl, set some boundaries. Set some boundaries. <laughs> At any rate, Mrs. Raymond has no boundaries. She heads off to a funeral for the day, and the twins look angelic, but quickly reveal their demonic side, as immediately after Mrs. Raymond leaves, Anne has to separate them because Geraldine is trying to throw Gerald bodily off the second story window because he stuck his tongue out at her. Anne tries to get them to go play, but then she's interrupted by a call from Miss Pamela Drake, a door-to-door -door saleswoman who is well known to never leave without getting the sale, no matter what she's selling. Anne is caught as Miss Drake enthuses about a set of encyclopedias. Anne is genuinely considering just making the sale to end the torture when Miss Drake shrieks her glasses, hat, and wig having been fished by Gerald from the upper story window in an extremely lucky catch. Miss Drake storms off, having finally lost a sale, and Anne debates if she should punish the twins since they did save her from having to buy encyclopedias. But she saved the trouble because before she can decide, Gerald yells that Geraldine just ate a worm in her apple, causing her to be violently sick. By the time that's all sorted, Anne decides to let Gerald off with a minor rebuke, and they all have a nice lunch together. The twins even helped with the dishes, so right things are going well now. But then, after lunch, a school board trustee comes by with matters of high importance to discuss with Anne. So Anne goes and sends the twins out to play. But then this stuck-up little neighbor girl named Ivy Trent comes by to show off her fancy new dresses with bows and boots. 
suits. Geraldine is green with envy and starts mocking Ivy with the classic taunt of repeating everything Ivy says. And this is as annoying to read as it is to hear in real life, by the way. (laughs) Ivy starts demanding that Gerald be her boyfriend, question mark, and then he gets angry too. They are all winding themselves up into a fever pitch when Gerald gets the inspired idea to tear the bows off of Ivy's dress. Geraldine is immediately on board and the two of them get positively diabolical. They drag her off to the woodshed, divest her of all her bows, and then decide to paint stripes on her legs with some leftover red and green paint, finishing by putting burrs all over her hair and turning her loose to run home throwing the bows after her these kids are monsters what a horrible thing to do absolute monsters this is not a funny little prank it really isn't like that's very cruel Anyway, after discovering the Ivy Trent debacle, Anne goes upstairs and finds the twin trying to rip each other apart. Anne gets teacher stern with them, which finally startles them into quiet and sends them off to separate spaces to cool off. The twins are distraught at being punished separately, but Anne insists and and has a quiet hour. She checks on Geraldine, who's fallen asleep, and then decides that Gerald has been so quiet, she'll go and let him get up, justifying it to herself that Ivy Trent really is very vain and had been asking for it. Wild take and surely wild take. Absolutely not. I don't care how annoying that kid next door is. You don't rip her clothes to shred, paint her with red and green stripes, and then send her off throwing her bows at her. What the hell? Nope. nope. Locking her up in the woodshed, whatever all they did. Anyway, nightmare. So then Anne finds that Gerald is actually gone. She thought he was sleeping and being good or whatever. He's gone. He climbed out the window. She finds him just as he falls into the pond. I mean, talk about deserving it. He's fine. He stands up immediately, but Geraldine has seen it and she shrieks and throws herself into the water to save him. So the two now are wet and chilly, but ultimately unharmed. Although Anne does call for a doctor anyway, just to be sure, because apparently their dad died from pneumonia. So that's good. A good precaution. Mrs. Raymond arrives home just as the doctor is leaving. And this woman has the absolute gall to chastise Anne for not taking good enough care of her twins. Anne sees herself out and reflects that even Davy was never that bad. Maybe only because Dora was such a peaceful presence that she didn't double Davy's misbehavior. (laughs) I bet Anne sees Dora in a more appreciative light right about now. Justice for Dora. So I don't know about this one. I don't know if this was another repurposed short story from another place or if Maude just felt that no Anne book could possibly be complete without some kind of childhood hijinks. Yeah, this went a little beyond hijinks for me. Yeah, same. Well, listeners, if you thought Anne had learned her lesson about meddling with other people's love affairs or in families with stern parents, you thought wrong, because here comes another one. Mm. Anne herself tells Gilbert, I'm beginning to suspect that I am an inveterate meddler in other people's business, always with excellent intentions, of course. Of course. True, and so true. So here's the current story. Jarvis Morrow has been courting Dovey Westcott, but Dovey's widowed father, Franklin, is stern and overprotective and has forbidden Dovey from seeing Jarvis. Well, now Dovey and Jarvis have been engaged for a year, not that her father knows, and Dovey won't marry Jarvis against her father's will. Jarvis is about to give up altogether. Anne convinces Jarvis that he has to set a boundary with Dovey, which he does. And Dovey goes to Anne, asking her what to do. She wants to marry Jarvis, but she's afraid her father will never forgive her. Anne advises her to be strong and make up her mind if she really loves Jarvis. And so Dovey agrees. 
And Jarvis is to get the marriage license. And next week, when her dad will be in Charlottetown overnight, Dovey will sneak out past her old aunt and go with Jarvis to his sister's house, where a minister will be waiting. They'll be married and jaunt right off to Kingsport for a honeymoon. Come home married. It'll be great. So the day comes. And then it's the evening. And then Jarvis shows up at Windy Poplar's absolutely frantic. Dovey has not met him at the agreed-upon spot, and he's been waiting for hours. He can't go up to her house to see what's happened in case her dad has come home early, so Anne agrees to go. Dovey is paralyzed with indecision, fearing her dad and regretting that she won't have a traditional church wedding with bridesmaids and a white dress. Anne is stern with her and gets her going, finally. But once they are married, Dovey is cheerful and glowy, and as the newlyweds are about to head out to Kingsport for their honeymoon, Dovey sweetly asks Anne to break the news to her father when he gets back the next evening. Anne agrees, because she feels responsible. Anne! So Anne heads on over that very next night. She gets straight to the point with Mr. Westcott, tells him that Dovey has married Jarvis and they have already gone off to Kingsport. She thinks he's about to go into a rage, but instead he breaks into laughter. Mr. Westcott explains he has wanted Jarvis to marry Dovey since they were kids. But he knows that the men in the Morrow family don't want what they can get easily. So he started a whole campaign, shooing the other little boys away so that Jarvis noticed Dovey and wanted to get to know her just to spite the old man, and then forbidding Jarvis to set foot in his house, placing Dovey just out of reach. As Mr. Westcott says, it's the charm of the uncaught. And it worked. They actually fell in love. But he hit a snag. He had not counted on Dovey's spinelessness. And now he was stuck. He did not want to rescind his ban on Jarvis and look weak, but Dovey wasn't able to defy her dad enough to go with Jarvis without his blessing. So he owes Anne a debt of gratitude. His plan is to sorrowfully forgive Dovey for her mother's sake so as not to give it all away and then throw the newlyweds a nice party. The men of this town, I don't even know what to say about them. But despite Mr. Westcott's sort of ham-fisted attempts at reverse psychology, I actually really love Dovey and Jarvis's story. I love an elopement. I love people running off in the middle of the night to get married. You know, like reminds me of an old romance novel going off to Gretna Green. Anyway, at this point, we get a little check-in with the folks at Windy Poplars as Rebecca Dew's feud against the cat comes to an end. The widows, quote, rehome Dusty Miller the cat without informing Rebecca Dew ahead of time, saying that they thought that's what she wanted because she hated him so. Rebecca Dew immediately reverses course and goes on about how Dusty Miller belongs in their home and threatens to quit unless they bring him back. So the widows do, and it's clear that they pulled this little charade to get Rebecca Dew on board with the cat, thinking it her own idea. Between this and the Franklin Westcott, we learn that manipulation is a okay. <laughs> there is a lot of that happening in this book. Right? Where it's like, well, the thing that we know about them is that they're stubborn or that they're contrary. So the way we're going to get them to do what we want is to do the exact opposite. That happens so often in this book. And it's kind of played for laughs. But I'm also a little bit like, does nobody talk to each other? Does nobody just have a conversation? This Some of these families are wild. Only Anne. Anne is bringing some straight talk to all of these families. That is true. I mean, I guess give her some credit for that. So the next episode, again lifted straight from one of Maud's short stories, is a nice throwback to young Anne's tragic story club entry that was titled My Graves. Now, you may remember that My Graves involved a minister's wife who buried nine children all across Canada. Anne ran out of tragedies by which to kill the fictional children and permitted the last child to live, but only after being disabled in an unnamed tragic accident. 
Anne is invited to the Tom Gallon house by a Miss Minerva Tom Gallon, a huge honor in Summerside. Miss Minerva is the last of the Tom Gallons, Summerside's original royal family. Anne arrives and Miss Minerva gives her a grand tour of the large mansion, but especially telling all sorts of macabre stories about family members who met gruesome ends. Honestly, I wish I could go on this tour. This sounds great. Miss Minerva says the Tom Gallon family is cursed because the patriarch essentially ruined the builder of the mansion by refusing to pay the mounting costs. Great-grandfather Tom Gallon fell down the stairs and broke his neck the very night of the lavish housewarming party celebrating the completion of the house. Since then, most of the Tom Gallons have died tragically. The whole evening is Miss Minerva talking endlessly about Anne, who can't get a word in edgewise, proud of all of her family's tragedies and ghosts. Really, Maude just has an endless list of tragedies to pull from. Apparently, several were edited out in the American version as being too grim or maybe making the chapter too long, so we're going to have to find that British edition to see if we're missing anything good and share it with y'all. Anne has to spend the night due to the storm and in the morning, Miss Minerva reveals that yesterday had been her birthday and she was really glad of Anne's delightful company. She also gives her permission to use any of these tragedies in her stories, being a trifle disappointed that Anne has no particular plans to do so. Mrs. Tom Gallen, I will use all of your family tragedies in some <laughs> stories. They could make some serious bank with Halloween ghost tours at the Tom yes. Gallen mansion. I kept thinking about the Winchester Mystery House. I'm all like, this is what the Tom Gallons need to be doing, is they need to be doing tours of the mansion with ghost stories. It'll be so great. The widows at Windy Poplars confirmed that the Tom Gallons really did seem to have an unusual number of bizarre tragedies, and that all Miss Minerva has is the curse and her family tragedies to keep her company. The last installment in the Anne Medals category involves little Elizabeth. Anne is worried that once she leaves, Elizabeth won't have anyone in her life to give her love and support the way that she needs. Elizabeth is just withering away in that gloomy old house with two gloomy old ladies who just want her to sit down and be quiet. Elizabeth confides in Anne that she wrote a letter to God asking him to bring her father back and make him love her. So Anne writes a letter to Elizabeth's father. She doesn't know his address, but Rebecca Dew knows the name of the company he works for and that he lives in Paris. So Anne sends it care of the company's Paris headquarters and hopes that it reaches him. But time is passing and it's coming very close to Anne's departure date and nothing has been heard from him at all. We then get a chapter where we switch to Elizabeth's perspective, and we can feel her despair about Anne leaving. But Anne promises a splendid day to look forward to, a trip down the red road that Elizabeth has been imagining walking along, and a journey to Flying Cloud, a little private island just off the shore in the bay that Elizabeth has always imagined to be a wonderful fairy tale sort of place. They do walk down the red road and they row over to Flying Cloud where Anne has an errand to run to speak to a Mrs. Thompson who lives there. When they arrive, the maid at the beautiful house tells them that Mrs. Thompson is off picking strawberries. So Anne asks if Elizabeth can rest at the house while she goes to find Mrs. Thompson. As Elizabeth is relaxing in the living room, a man walks in and asks who she might be. She says that she's Elizabeth Grayson and explains Anne's errand. It seems like the man is taken a bit aback, but... He then offers to let her choose anything she wants to eat, and she asks for ice cream and strawberry jam. The two chat while she eats her treat, and she feels very at ease and comfortable talking to him, although she doesn't know why. He leaves before Anne returns, and Elizabeth is sad to see him go for some reason. She and Anne row away from Flying Cloud, ready to continue their adventure down the red road. But as they return to the road, Elizabeth is plowed down by a runaway team of horses. Plot twist! You guys didn't see that one coming, did you? 
I mean, so bananas. It's like such a sweet little story. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, horses. Don't worry, guys. Elizabeth wakes up at Flying Cloud. She's been attended to by the doctor and had only been knocked unconscious, not seriously injured. How? I mean, I don't know. This is sounding suspicious to me. She sees the man that she had met earlier talking to Anne. And it turns out this is Elizabeth's father. He had come to see Elizabeth for himself after getting Anne's letter. He had only just arrived and he was staying out in Flying Cloud at the home of the company's manager when he happened to meet Elizabeth in the living room. He promises Elizabeth right there that she doesn't have to go back to her grandmother's and she can come and live with him instead. He had not realized how much time had passed, nor how bad it was in her grandmother's home. I mean, I don't know how much I buy it. Elizabeth's like 10 years old by this point. Like, you forgot you had a daughter for 10 years? Like, what did you think happened? Do you think she was a baby for 10 years straight? Did you ever write and be like, hey, how's my kid? They had pictures. Like, hey, any recent pictures of the kid? Right? Or write her a letter? But it's okay. Elizabeth is very, very happy, and it even reconciles her to Anne leaving, and she'll be moving to Boston with her dad. Oh, good for her. It's actually very sweet. I know I'm being, like, a little sarcastic, but yes. Elizabeth reuniting with her father is very, very heartwarming and touching. It is very sweet. Here's the hard thing, because this book is written so out of time with the other ones. Any of these characters, we don't get little, like, hints of what happened to them in later books, because the later books were already written. This is it. This is all we hear about Elizabeth. We don't even though it's anything she forged this really important friendship like with Elizabeth and with Catherine. Yeah, there's never anything later on about her corresponding with them or them visiting Ingleside or anything like that. No. At any rate. So Anne says goodbye to Wendy Poplars, her students and friends, and she can't wait to return to Green Gables and prepare at last to marry Gilbert. We get the update that Catherine Brooke has been hired as a secretary to a globe-trotting MP, which I think is a minister of parliament or some kind of Canadian politician. Oh, uh, good. Canadians, please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and so Catherine will be going on adventures around the world just as she's always dreamed. Anne has last dinners with lots of folks, including Pauline Gibson, whose mother has finally died. I mean, I guess we're relieved. Honestly, I am. Makes me feel better to feel like Pauline is at least out there eating her dinner in peace. Anne says goodbye to the widows and Rebecca Dew is too overcome with emotion to say goodbye in person, but gives her a letter with lines pulled straight out of an old-fashioned etiquette book to express her deep feeling. But the last sight Anne sees is Rebecca Dew waving a big white towel from the tower window, which I love that. Yes, I think it's a lovely end. It is. Okay, final cranky person count. Okay, I'm going to say nine. I'm counting the Pringles as one cranky person because they kind of operate. a cranky entity. Yes, a cranky entity. So we've got the Pringles plus Cyrus Taylor, Catherine Brooke, Mrs. Gibson, Aunt Mouser, Nora Nelson, Cousin Ernestine, Teddy's dad, Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Westcott, and that's nine. But we could also count Elizabeth's grandmother in there for an even 10, but she doesn't really get... She's not on the page, but we do know she's an old crank. I think she counts. All right, we're going to say an even 10. Where do we put the terrible twins? Are they are they cranky or are they their own category? They're their own category of awfulness. Gerald and Geraldine, indeed. We also have two morbid ladies obsessed with death with Miss Cordelo and Miss Tom Gallen. I love them both. We have four love affairs meddled in. Five if you count the Taylor sisters separately, but I don't because it was the same meddling dinner. Right, right. With the with the cranky dad. Yeah. So we've got the Taylor sisters plus Nora and Jim, Hazel and Terry, and Dovey and Jarvis. Uh, and then we have 
two other lives meddled in, Catherine's and Elizabeth's. So honestly, they all turn out okay, except for the Hazel situation. So I guess Anne's batting average is pretty solid in the meddling department. I mean, I think Hazel thinks that it, things turned out okay. I mean, the reader and Anne might disagree, but Hazel seems pretty happy with her lot in life. Well, I... <laughs> I admit this is a bit of a slog. Thank you all so much for hanging in there. We don't really have time for a puff sleeve segment, but we will squeeze in an inspired by before we go today. Reagan, what are you inspired by? So I was inspired by all of Anne's meddling. How could you not be? <laughs> I know. So I'm inspired to rewatch a movie about another charming meddler, Amelie. If you haven't seen it, it's a French movie about a shy young woman in France. She has an active imagination and a mischievous streak but is deeply lonely and had been isolated all her life. So she copes with her loneliness by trying to bring happiness to the people around her by observing them and figuring out what might make them happy, concocting schemes to help them try to find true happiness. Like Anne, all of Amelie's meddling involves a good heart and a true spirit of helping others. It just isn't always as straightforward as she thinks. The movie is charming and quirky and whimsical, and I have to think that Anne would absolutely love it. So if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's such a sweet movie. And, you know, they made a musical of it as well, a Broadway musical, which is also very, very cute. Amazing. I have not heard that, and now it is on my listen list. So with Halloween right around the corner, well, maybe around the block, we still have a few more weeks. And Mrs. Tom Gallon's house fresh in my mind, I'm going to recommend a recent favorite haunted house story. It's Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It's set in 1950s Mexico, and the heroine, Noemi, is a frivolous social life who is enjoying her life of dances and dresses and parties when her newlywed cousin asks her to come visit. Noemi's cousin has hinted in the letter that she's trapped in her new home, but Noemi sort of dismisses it as anxiety, and she thinks she can help calm her cousin down and get her settled in with her new husband. When Noemi arrives at this creepy old house built like an English castle that doesn't have electricity but does have visible mold rotting away at the wallpaper, she's like, oh, this sucks though, and starts trying to figure out how to get her cousin out of there. There's lots of intense dread and spookiness and the ending, that ending just like lives in my soul as one of the most unexpectedly bonkers things I have ever read. And while this book has all the classic gothic tropes down pat, it is also full of surprises and totally unique. I absolutely love this book and I recommend Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Well, that sounds perfect for fall seasons. Thank you all for joining us, Kindred Spirits. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub or email us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com to tell us how you've shared the pod with others via social media or left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, if you do, if you do share the pod with others on social media or if you do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we will send you one of our brand new and very cute stickers of our beautiful logo for free. So, let us know. Send us a screenshot of your share to our email at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And please join us next time as we start our deep dive on Anne of Windy Poplars. Thanks, Kindred Spirits. 